In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and God Amen. Our Bible study tonight, Psalm 111. This psalm has no title in the Hebrew, but it is believed to be written by David the prophet. This psalm is one of the alphabetical or acrostic psalms. What do I mean by acrostic or alphabetical? Each sentence, not verse, starts with a Hebrew letter in alphabetical order. Except for the beginning, the first word of the psalm, which is Alleluia, praise the Lord. Alleluia means praise the Lord. Hallelujah, the Arabic and Hebrew are close, means praise. Ya is Yahweh. Jehovah. So, hallelujah, praise Jehovah, praise the Lord. Except for hallelujah, when they start, I will praise the Lord. So, every sentence starts with a letter from the alphabet of Hebrew. The alphabetical order of Hebrew, which are 22 letters. There are 22 sentences, 22 sentences, 10 verses, but 22 sentences of, the, of this psalm begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Many commentators note the connection between this psalm 111 and the psalm 112, the following psalm. Both psalms start with Alleluia, praise the Lord. Also, Psalm 111 is an acrostic psalm about God. Psalm 112 is also acrostic psalm in alphabetical order about God's people. So this psalm about God, the next psalm about God's people. This Psalm 111 praises God for his great work. Psalm 112 praises the way of life of those who fear the Lord. I want you to notice that the last verse in Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 111 ends by the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 12 takes up that theme, the fear of the Lord, and starts by, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And the psalm sentences, the 22 sentences, are arranged in a specific way to limit the number of verses to 10, considered a perfect number. So the verses are 10 verses in this psalm. In this psalm, we find a hymn of praise and thanksgiving for the many benefits that describe God in his attributes and his work of salvation. For example, you will find all this description about God, compassion, love, justice, mind, truth, uprightness, standing firm, covenant, works, wonders, even food which God provides, which is a symbol of the Eucharist, by the way. And lastly, his glorious name, and usually when we say the name of the Lord, it refers to God himself. 
This and several of the Psalms that followed seem to have been written by David for the worship service in their holy feasts and not upon any particular occasion. So he wrote these verses, these psalms to be used in the temple during their feasts. But some believe that this psalm and many of the following were used in the celebration of the Passover, which also a Jewish feast. St. Augustine, as his style in interpreting all the psalms, all the psalms for St. Augustine are a symbol of Christ. So this psalm in particular is a symbol of the Christian Passover, which is the Eucharist. Psalm 110, the previous psalm, spoke about the ascension of the Lord and how he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Then, from Psalm 111 to 118, these psalms are called Alleluia Psalms, because all of them start by Alleluia. And these psalms celebrate this salvation and the victory of the Lord after he completed the salvation on the cross and ascended to the heaven, then there are eight psalms from 111 to 118. These eight psalms start by Alleluia, and all of them are praising God for his salvation and his victory. They are a celebration of God's redemption through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. St. Augustine says, let us hear the heart of the people of God full of divine praises. People of God are praising God with all their hearts. He represents in this psalm someone exulting in happy joyfulness. He prefigures the people whose hearts are flowing with the love of God. So David in the psalm representing all of us when we praise God with happy joyfulness because our hearts are flowing with love of God because of the salvation that he accomplished for us. So we praise him. And who are these people? These people are the body of Christ who are freed from all evil through the cross of our Lord Jesus. We pray the sun in the ninth hour of the Agbayim because in the ninth hour we celebrate the accomplishment of salvation when the Lord uh, said on the cross it is finished and he gave his human soul in the hand of the Father. It is 10 verses. Verse 1, invitation to praise God. 2 and 3, the study of God's great work. We look at it. We reflect on them. We meditate on them. 4 and 2, 6, remembering God's great work. After we study them, we should not forget them. 7 to 9, and the nature of God's great work. That is the conclusion of our study. So from verse 2 and 3, we study the God's work. Then we should not forget them. Then 
What is the description of God's work in verse 7 to 9? Then concluded by verse 10, which is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. So he said, invited the people to praise God. Then he set himself as an example. I will praise God. How? Wholeheartedly, with my whole heart. In the assembly of the upright, as we'll say, this like the apostles or the leaders of the church, and in the congregation among everyone else. So the psalmist begins by calling the congregation to praise God and then affirms that he will do so personally with his whole heart, which means that his outward expression of praise finds its source in his deepest inner nature. So when we praise God with our mouth, it should come from our heart. So he begins with this simple declaration, Alleluia, and as I explained, Alleluia means praise God, praise the Lord. The declaration has the idea of encouraging others to do the same. Praise the Lord, I also will praise the Lord, and you should praise the Lord. He praises sincerely, and not for any present advantage of gain. It's not thanksgiving, it's not he is thanking God for certain advantage that God gave him. No. He is actually praising God because it is due, it is fitting, it is proper, it is meet, it is right to praise God. And he is praising God heartily and entirely. For he who praises God with half his heart is deceitful. If one wants other people to praise God, he must praise God first. In the same way, if one wants them to love God, he must love God too. We must set ourselves as an example. St. John Chrysostom says, I will praise the Lord. David is saying, I shall give thanks. He spent all his life in this pursuit to praise God. He begins with this, and to this end, he brings to a close all his life. This was his occupation all the time, offering thanks for favors done both to him and to others. God looks for nothing as much as this. After all, this sacrifice, this offering, this sign of a grateful spirit, this is a blow against the devil. When you praise God, it is a blow against the devil. He gives thanks unto the Lord with his whole heart. He praises the Lord with undivided affection. Undivided affection. St. John Chrysostom again says, What is the meaning of with my whole heart? Means with all eagerness, earnestly, freed of this world's concern, uplifted, releasing the soul from the body's bonds, 
with my heart, not simply with words or with tongue and mouth only, but with the mind as well. This was the way Moses also put it in making the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We must praise God both in private and public. That's why he said in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Not only praising God privately, but in public also. Private prayers should be kept up as well as public assemblies. In the assembly of the upright, who are the upright? The straight, the right, the upright. Those who are walking the straight or the narrow path that lead to life. The Hebrew word for the word in the assembly means in the secret, implying a small number of trusty advisors who are distinct from and higher than the general congregation. That's why St. Augustine said the assembly of the upright indicating like the body of the apostles or the leaders of the church and the congregation describing the holy church. Verse 2 The works of the Lord are great, studied, meditated, reflected upon by all who have pleasure in them. Why we should praise God? God should be praised for who He is, but also for what He has done, because His works are worthy of praise. Here the emphasis is on His work in creation. These works are great in number, great in wisdom, great in their significance. That's why He said the works of the Lord are great. They are the object of meditation, studying, inquiry, with loving diligence by all who delight in learning to understand God's revelation of Himself. Those who have pleasure in the works of God and studying the Word of God, why? Because that is how God is revealing Himself to us. Eager zeal is the study of the deep things of God. Eager zeal in the study of the deep things of God characterizes his true followers. The psalmist is saying that those who delight in God's works seek, examine, and study those works. Every part of creation, everything which exists, has its divinely appointed task and its place in working out some purpose of God. I remember when I was in the medical school, the professor who gave us, actually who taught us physiology, was not Christian. But I remember when he actually teaching us the physiology of every organ, he pauses and, and say, See the greatness of the Lord. See the greatness of God. How, for example, this eye, this small organ, function 
in this amazing way. So reflecting on the works of God actually teaches us about the greatness of God and how each thing in the creation has its appointed task and place in working out the purpose of God. A man who loves God will have real pleasure in studying his works as well as his word. St. John Chrysostom confirms that God the Creator, out of his care for us, what lets his creation work according to the nature he created them and to respect its laws. So God actually made a law and how each creature work according to this law. And that is how the irrational creation praise God. In the third host which is taken from the book of Daniel, when we say Praise the Lord, stars, praise the Lord, moon and sun, praise the Lord, snow, praise the Lord, cold and heat, etc. How this irrational creation is praising God? By following the law that God set for each creature. And again, at God's will and pleasure, and in certain situations, God will command the creature to work contrary to this nature and they will obey him as what happened during the flood during the time of Noah his work is honorable and glorious and his righteousness endures forever there is honor there is majesty in everything that God does that's why in verse 3 he said his work is honorable and glorious he has done nothing in nature or grace that does not contribute to or benefit his own honor and glory. So everything actually we look at it reflects the majesty, the honor, the greatness of God. Because all is done in righteousness and it endures forever. Every work of God serve to display God's glory and set off the greatness of His Majesty as the angels, the seraphim chanted heaven and earth are full of His glory Righteousness is one of the defining attributes of God's character His righteousness endures forever Righteousness means doing it right that's righteousness one may wonder if God's words are authoritative and glorious and majestic. What must God be like? If the works are honorable and glorious, then the one who did the work, how he looks like, wouldn't the Creator be even greater than the creation? According to St. Augustine, God's work full of majesty and splendor is justifying the ungodly. Man's actions may oftentimes hinder this glorious work of God. For the ungodly, 
when they look actually to the heaven and to the earth, they will condemn those who do not believe in God. Because heaven and earth declare the glory of God. Sometimes our action hinder this glorious work of God. But through confessing our sins, the person may be qualified to be justified. So when we repent and confess our sins, we will be justified. Much is forgiven to him who loves much. And where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And lest man may think himself worse to be justified by his own works, the blessed St. Paul says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So St. Augustine says, this actually work of God, the atheists or the non-believers will look at them. Then they will believe in the majesty of God. They will believe in the greatness of God. Then they will repent and will confess their sins. God will forgive their sins and will accept them. So even heaven and earth can lead people to repentance, can lead people to believe in God. If we reflect, if we study them, because they reveal the majesty of God, the greatness of God, so heaven and earth actually can lead people to believe in God. And again, when we say, praise God, sun, moon, ice, snow, all this irrational creation, one of the ways they praise in God because they lead people to believe in God and confess His majesty, His greatness, and His authority. His work is honorable and glorious. In a spiritual sense, the work of salvation, the conversion of sinners, leading them to confession of their own sins, are God's work, not man's work, out of His love and grace not because of their strength and merit. St. John Chrysostom says, His righteousness endures forever. He means to say, Don't despair, O man, however oppressed you may be, for you will get the reward of your labor, even after your departure from this world. And you as well who do evil, do not rejoice. Even if your life here on earth may end peacefully, for you will have to present a complete account of your deeds and will have to pay back the cost of your evil works. That's God's righteousness, as you see, endures forever. Verse 4 He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. God wants us to remember His wonderful works, not to forget them. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. God designed His saving acts to be remembered among His people. He who seeks the work of the Lord out will never forget them. God calls His people to remember His mighty work. For example, he asked Israel to remember the Exodus, his provision for Israel in the wilderness, his commandments, his leadership into the promised land, his deliverance of Israel from its enemies. 
It is a dishonor to God and a failure of man that the miracles of his redemption are forgotten or worse yet if we deny them. God also gave Israel and us tools for remembering. For example, Sabbath to remember the creation. Feast days to remember his salvation like the Passover. Various rites and ceremonies to remember his salvation that he has done to us. Physical reminders and scripture, especially the law and the prophets. All these are tools to remember the words of God. Why we celebrate the feasts? Feast of Nativity, Feast of Epiphany, Feast of Resurrection, Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Ascension. To remember the words of God. That is the main purpose of feasts. And by remembering his work, recalling them into our life, we are glorifying God. All what the Mighty One does is so wonderful to be always remembered by the believer. But what is truly amazing is his compassion and mercy. That's why after he said to be remembered, he said the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion is so important. Why? Because all, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So our only hope is being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's graciousness and mercy. God sent His Son to die for us and to save us. That is the ultimate expression of the graciousness and mercy of God. Verse 5, He has given food to those who fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant. He has given food means God provides all our necessary needs, all necessary provisions for our well-being. Perhaps David had in mind God's provision for Israel through the wilderness. Or the more general principle David wrote in Psalm 37, verse 25, when he said, I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. But some believe that this psalm is sung as a praise to God on the day of Passover. And that food here is meant to refer to the Passover itself. But in the scripture, food manna, the bread, the water, usually all this means spiritual food and spiritual drink. All the great Christian commentators refer to this verse, prophecy of the Eucharist. God gave food, God gave us the Eucharist, his body and his blood. This is the food that I will give, this is the bread that I will give the world, my body and my blood, as he said in John chapter 6. St. Augustine says, what would be better or, or of more benefit for those who fear God than to be given by the Lord the compassionate and merciful, the incorruptible food, the bread of life, the bread that come down from heaven, which he gives not for our own worthiness. 
Then he spoke about the covenant. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. Some of the important biblical covenant were between God and Abraham, God and Isaac and Jacob, God and Noah, God and Moses, God and David, God and Israel. And God is mindful of the covenant. Means this kind of remembering goes beyond bringing some, something to mind. Mindful does not mean he just remember them. No. It involves action. Meaning, being faithful to one's promise. Covenant, there is a promise. And God is faithful to one's promise. Not only that. God is not only faithful to his promises. But also forgive Israel and his people time after time when we betray our side of the covenant. Even if we betray our side of the covenant, God will remain faithful. God did not hide his greatness, but he declared it to his people. As we read in verse 6, he has declared to his people the power of his words. He did not hide it from us. He declared it to us in giving them the heritage of the nation. So how God declared his word to his people? This declaration of his great work brought Israel into the land of Canaan, giving them the heritage of the nations. His power was shown especially in giving them the promised land. Because in giving them the heritage of the nations, it is also a symbolic. Symbolic that the heathen, the idol worshippers, the Gentiles, will submit to the law of Christ by spreading his church to the whole world. Also, the heritage of the nations can be a symbol to heaven, gaining of heaven by the saints and their occupation of those seats whence the rebelled angels fell. The fallen angels rebelled against God and the believers took their seats in heaven. Verse 7 The words of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. God's actions are manifestation of his eternal attribute of truth and justice. For all his works are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he, as we read in Deuteronomy 32, verse 2. What God has done shall never be undone. He is constantly true to his promises and never does anything to justifying wrong. None of his actions can be fairly interpreted as having been done to sustain injustice. No, all his words are true, verity and justice. The first reference is to the punishment of Canaanites. Here actually, when he said the words of God are verity and justice, he's referring to two things. 
When God gives the inheritance of the promised land to Israel, He did two things. He punished the Canaanites and also He gave the land of the promised land to Israel. So the gift of Canaan to Israel was the fulfillment of His promise to the patriarch. While the removal of its inhabitant was a just retribution for their sins. So here God show how he is faithful. Those who actually lived a sinful life, God punished them by removing them from the land. And then he gave the land to Israel to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. St. John Chrysostom says, God did not only drive out the nations when he wanted to lead the Jews in. He did it with pride on his side. Maybe some people say, just drove these nations out to give it to Israel. No. Driving these people out was right and just. And giving the land to Israel was also right and just. Had he applied only the criterion of justice, everything would be perished. If God only applied justice, not mercy, everything would be perished. All of us would perish. If on the other hand, had he applied only loving kindness, the majority of people would have become more indifferent to his commandments. If God just merciful, merciful and loving, and there is no justice, then people will be indifferent. That's why he applies both of these, mercy and truth, with a view to their correction, so the people can be corrected and repent. Also, in his conquest of the heathen by his church, when the heathen became Christian, the same rule holds. For although God allowed his martyrs to be dragged to prison and to judgment, yet his truth prevailed by that very persecution so as to become known to countless thousands. Through this persecution, God became known to countless thousands of people and believed in him. And he will show his verity again in the last day. How? By rewarding according to God's most true promise, those who kept his commandment faithfully, God will tell them, well done, good and faithful servant. Inherit the kingdom of your master. But also, God will judge his judgment by condemning those who have continued relentlessly in rebellion against him. So we can see here justice and mercy together. Then he said, all his precepts are sure, in the second part of verse 7, all his precepts are sure. Here, there is a natural transition by the psalmist, passes from the mighty works of God that he has done for his people, to the commandment which he has given them. As God gave us his work, he gave us also his word. And all his precepts, all his commandments are sure, trustworthy, not changeable or random. They are firm, 
and to be believed and complied with, either to destroy the nation or to possess their land. He gave his word to destroy the rebellious nation and to possess the land to his people, Israel. Verse 8, the precept of God, they stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. So the vindication of God's way continue in verse 8. They stand fast forever and ever. God uphold his precept, laws, commandments forever. They will not fail or fall. Everything will be shaken, but his law, his word will not fail, as the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mountain. Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. God, as St. James said about him, is the father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. His laws have truth because God will most certainly fulfill what has spoken concerning them. That's why he said about his law and his commands are done in truth and uprightness because God will fulfill them. They are upright because they are no mere valuable rules. The rules are not changeable but based on the profoundest goodness. Verse 9, he has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Redemption involves bringing liberty to a captive, usually through the payment of a price, ransom. That's what redemption is. In a historical sense, he is referring to the redemption of the Jews and their deliverance from Egypt and also from the Babylonian captivity. But in a spiritual sense, he is referring to the redemption of the world through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the psalmist is looking forward to much more glorious event, even to those which God himself foretold by the mouth of the prophet. In Jeremiah. So in a prophetic way, David was speaking about the redemption that God will fulfill through Jesus Christ. And he has commanded his covenant forever, a new covenant, not the old covenant, but a new covenant. As we read in Jeremiah 31 verse 33, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people, for I will forgive their iniquity on the cross and their sin I will remember no more. So all these dealings in the Old Testament were a shadow, a symbol of the eternal salvation 
he realized it through sending his only begotten son to carry the sins of the whole world on the cross. That is the covenant that he established. He has commanded his covenant forever. His covenant, which cannot be covenant of circumcision of the Old Testament or that at Sinai, because both of them were not forever, but the covenant of grace made with Christ, which stand fast with him forever. It is everlasting, sure, and can never be removed. It shall always continue, which is meant by its being commanded. So when he, see, he has commanded his covenant forever, mean he orders his covenant to be forever. It will continue forever. Then he concluded verse 9 by saying, Holy and awesome is his name. Holy and awesome. God has many titles that are short of revealing his whole indescribable nature. And holy and awesome, one or two of these titles, St. John Chrysostom says, if his name has that effect, how much more so his being? But in what way his name is holy and awesome? Demons tremble at the name of God. Ailments and difficulties quail before the name of God. The apostles invoked this name to set all the world at right. Just by invoking his name, they transformed the world. And if it is holy, it requires holy mouth for singing praises. Holy and pure mouth. Last verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Which means those who do his commandment will have good understanding. His praise endures forever. So recognizing the greatness of God's work, one should appropriately fear him. So when we see the greatness of God, we need to fear him. God should be regarded with respect, reverence, awe. That's the meaning of fear. It's not fear of his judgment or fear of the slaves. No, but respect and awe of his goodness and grace. It is reverent, odd affection for him. This proper attitude of the creature toward the creator is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise, start by fearing God. Wisdom cannot advance further until this starting point is established. So the idea is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this was repeated in Job 28-28, Proverbs 1, 7, Proverbs 9-10, and Ecclesiastes 12-13. According to St. John Chrysostom, the psalmist here is referring not to wisdom in word, but wisdom in deeds. God has revealed himself as one who is to be feared, to be respected. To fear whom, therefore, is the starting point of all true wisdom. Wisdom in deeds means it will be reflected in how we conduct our life. We conduct our life wisely. And as I said, Psalm 112, the following Psalm, develop the thoughts of the blessedness, the happiness of the man whose life is governed 
by this principle, he walks in the fear of God. In vain does any man think he is wise who does not fear the Lord. If you don't fear God, then you are not wise. But he who fears the Lord departs from evil. He who lives in sin neither fears God nor is wise. Taking into account the greatness of God's work, one should obey God and do His commandments. A life of obedience reveals that one has good understanding of the greatness of God's work. If you have a good understanding, a good understanding have of those who do His commandments. If you have good understanding, if you study the Word of God, and you have good understanding, and you know that God is to be feared, then you will keep his commandments. The person who does God's work also will have understanding. So it is uh, going both ways. If you have good understanding, you will fear God and obey his word. And if you fear God and obey his word, you will have good understanding. The kind of special sense that enables a person to make good decisions, that's the wisdom, and avoid bad consequences. That is the wisdom. The person whose faith results in wisdom and understanding will be able to praise God. That's why after he spoke about wisdom and understanding, he said his praise endures forever. So when we acquire this heavenly wisdom, and we have this understanding of God's greatness and the greatness of His Word, our mouth and our heart will praise the Lord forever. His praise can have no end because His abundances are infinite. We praise Him here on earth because He saves sinners. We also will praise Him in heaven because He crowns the saints. So his praise endures forever. Thus the psalm which begins with Alleluia, praise the Lord, fitly ends with the declaration that this song of praise shall be repeated forevermore. His praise endures forever. This actually concludes Psalm 111. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.